My home is in Springs, East Hampton, Long Island. I was born in Cody, Wyoming, 39 years ago. In New York, I spent two years at the Art Students League with Tom Benton. He was a strong personality to react against. This was in 1929. I don't work from drawings or color sketches. My painting is direct. I usually paint on the floor. I enjoy working on a large canvas. I feel more at home, more at ease in a big area. Having the canvas on the floor, I feel nearer, more a, a part of the painting. This way I can walk around it, work from all four sides, and be in the painting, similar to the Indian sand painters of the West. Sometimes I use a brush, but often prefer using a stick. Sometimes I pour the paint straight out of the can. I like to use a dripping, fluid paint. I also use sand, broken glass, drain. A method of painting is the natural growth out of a need. I want to express my feelings rather than illustrate them. Technique is just a means of arriving at a statement. When I am painting, I have a general notion as to what I am about. I can control the flow of the paint. There is no accident, just as there is no beginning and no end. Sometimes I lose a painting. But I have no fear of changes, of destroying the image. Because a painting has a life of its own, I try to let it live. Okay, that was painful. He even struggled with putting Cody and Wyoming together, and that was the best take they got. That audio was from a a short film created by a guy named Hans Namuth in 1951, and we'll get into exactly who that was and catch up to when it was made towards the end of this episode. I'd call it a cross between a promotional piece and a documentary. It's a little muddled. But I wanted to play it now because as Jackson becomes more and more famous and in demand, it's important to have in your mind exactly how not okay with using his words he is. That was Jackson trying to be his most engaging, and he struggles to even articulate what he's doing and why he's doing it. So last episode, when we got introduced to Jackson Pollock's drip paintings, I said the thing that I always say about art, which is, this is pretty cool, which is admittedly a fundamentally useless thing to say and contain absolutely no analysis. But you guys can't give me shit because he actually made those paintings, and he's an even bigger idiot than I am when it comes to describing them. And we're going to get into more of what's happening on Jackson's canvases in this episode, especially as his drip paintings evolve. But for right now, let's just track what the critics thought at the time, the live assessment as it happened. Critics were not on board with the 1947 Parsons show. All of the critical goodwill that Jackson built up over the last few years as the raw new American artist, it just evaporated. The show is described as, quote, nothing but crashing energy and monotonous intensity. A magazine called Art News said, quote, 
mere unorganized explosions of random energy and therefore meaningless. And honestly, that's exactly how I always thought of Jackson Pollock's paintings. He just randomly dripped everywhere, and great, he was the first to do it, but okay. But yet again, Clement Greenberg stood by Jackson and doubled down in his praise, and he said Jackson, quote, offers a puzzle only to those not sincerely in touch with contemporary painting. When critics said that Jackson's work with color was weak, Greenberg said that his work needed time to be properly digested. Greenberg got a little creative with his critical analysis, too. Uh, he knew that people were slow to get on board with the style of abstraction that was coming out of America. So we started to compare Jackson's paintings like Cathedral to the analytical cubism paintings of George Brock and Picasso. We touched on cubism before, and analytical cubism was an early form of cubism that was very mathematically based, using geographic shapes to break down an image. Again, this was pre-Picasso putting women he made cry and boobs into everything. So Greenberg was trying to say that there was an inherent math in these paintings, and that Jackson created them after immersing himself in analytical cubist theory, so really Jackson was a late cubist. More accurately, Jackson spent his entire life digesting various forms of corn liquor, bathtub gin, beer, toilet hooch. Look, it's episode 7, you know the deal. Lee never really believed Greenberg's assessment that Jackson was a late cubist, but even Lee can be wrong, and we wouldn't know how wrong she was until about 2015. Soon after the show, Jackson's contract with Peggy was over, leaving Jackson and Lee completely broke. Betty Parsons ended up signing Jackson for another year, but there was no monthly provision in the contract for a stipend, so that winter Jackson and Lee could only afford to heat one room in the house. They had outstanding bills everywhere. Uh, they had a $56 bill at Dan Miller's grocery store in Springs. That's where Jackson got his paint, liquor, where they bought groceries. Dan Miller was one of the only people in town who accepted a painting by Jackson as payment. Nobody else in Springs would take one of the paintings to cover a bill or a debt. The Bonnikers thought Jackson and Lee's situation was, quote, pathetic but predictable, a cruelly appropriate fate for a crazy artist. So the Bonnikers were kind of assholes. And things got so bad financially that Jackson tried to get a teaching job at the Art Students League. However, quote, because of his behavior, it couldn't be considered. The only thing that kept Lee and Jackson afloat through 1947 was, of course, Lee Krasner. All of the behind-the-scenes relationship building, that worked, and Jackson sold his painting Shooting Star from that early series of drip paintings, which I'll put up for this episode's post. And that painting sold for, I think, $1,500. I completely forget how much. And it was the only thing that kept Lee and Jackson fed throughout that year. And as terrible as the Pollocks were doing financially, and as much as critics were abandoning ship, there was another artist in New York who was growing into the critical and commercial success that Jackson wasn't. And that was Willem de Kooning. De Kooning's first show in 1948 was given rave reviews, and critics would call his art from that show, quote, a singular concentration of passion and technique, fierce energy, virtuosity, voluptuousness. Jackson, of course, was getting blind drunk while the opening of the show was happening. He walked into the after party at Jack the Oysterman's Fish Restaurant on 8th Street and basically did his Jackson thing. He was screaming at old friends and, quote, everyone was white with fear. I mean, there was a real threat of physical violence. But that ended when another artist named Arshiel Gorski threatened to stab Jackson in the throat with a pocket knife. Gorky was another New York artist, and his contributions to New York's abstract art movement weren't really appreciated until after his death, which was rapidly approaching. That year in 1948, a bit after his studio burned down, he had part of his intestines removed due to cancer and I believe ended up with a colostomy bag. 
And then Gorky got into a car accident where he broke his neck and his painting arm was temporarily paralyzed. And then his wife left him and took the kids, so Gorky hung himself in Connecticut. And it is an utter tragedy when people commit suicide, and if you're thinking about it, please get help. You can call a helpline, and you don't even have to give your real name. You can say your name is Leroy McCoy. I mean, names don't matter in this entire story. They wouldn't really matter in that phone call. But whatever happens, please don't kill yourself in Connecticut. Nobody should die in Connecticut. Nobody should actually live in Connecticut. People end up there. They don't choose that life. Please don't choose your death there. The summer in 1948 was good for Jackson. Uh, he always did better in the summer. The weather was more conducive to being outside doing Leroy-type stuff and not being stuck inside drinking. And that summer, friends would visit, and they would bring their kids, and everybody said that Jackson was wonderful with kids. And of course, I mean, he's basically a child himself. People said that Jackson was incredibly gentle and accepting of the kids that visited the house in Springs, and that he himself had a childlike quality and children loved him. One time, a bunch of kids ran through his studio and tracked dirty footprints all over a half-finished canvas, and everybody was like, ooh, shit, and expected Jackson to do the Jackson explosion thing. But he just laughed and turned the footprints into part of the painting, and he would regale the children who visited with adventures and wondrous tales of a dog named Jip. And I'm sure at least one of the kids was like, hey, but isn't that? And he's like, no, 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 that's Jip 2.0. The current Jip is because I'm unable to process my feelings and evolve emotionally past the age of nine. This was about a previous Jip. And with Sandy and Charles having taken steps back from Jackson, Marvin slash Jay doing whatever he's doing, and Frank being an absolute piece of human garbage wherever he is, Jackson did his best to fill his life with surrogate brothers. And it's sad, he's unable to accept things as they are or try to fix them, so he needs to build this pretend bubble world around him. We already met one of the surrogate brothers, uh, Roger fucking Wilcox, who, Wilcox, we'll get to him in like 10 minutes. Another new brother was a guy named Harry Jackson. Uh, no relation. Harry had an interesting story. He was actually born Harry Shapiro until he renounced Judaism and changed his last name, and then he left Chicago at 14 to be a cowboy in Wyoming. I'm realizing after Clement, Harry, it's not that people were renouncing Judaism, they were just renouncing being treated like absolute shit by everyone. Harry did a pretty thorough job of cultivating his cowboy persona, and years later he would bring his mother out to Wyoming and told her, quote, This is where you gave birth to me. Which is a profoundly bizarre denial of your past. But also forcing your weirdness onto your mother, who you thought apparently cheated you out of a cowboy western fantasy childhood? Yeah, Harry kind of sucks already. As Harry was developing his cowboy persona, he was drafted into the Marines and he went overseas to fight in World War II. When he came back from the war, Harry was worn down, quote, to the very goddamn nub. Uh, Harry had pretty severe PTSD. As bad as we are now at diagnosing and treating PTSD, it was way worse back in World War II. George Patton, old blood and guts and famous American World War II general, he was also known for two incidents of slapping soldiers who were suffering from PTSD at hospitals. The first was Charles Cool, who was an 18-year-old rifleman in the 26th Infantry, and he was pulled from combat with pretty serious PTSD. When Patton visited him, he also had a severe fever and was suffering from malaria and dysentery. Patton yanked him out of bed and slapped him in the face with his glove like he was challenging him into a duel in 1784. Within 48 hours, the 7th Army Headquarters was directed to cease and desist sending battle fatigue cases to the rear, with Patton saying, quote, 
Such men bring discredit on the army and disgrace to their comrades. Gee, I wish I was back in the army. The army wasn't really bad at all. The second incident was Private Paul Bennett, a 21-year-old from South Carolina, and Patton walked up to the trembling soldier at the 93rd Evacuation Hospital in San Stefano. And he slapped Bennett in the mouth and yelled, quote, Hell, you're just a goddamn coward. You're going back to the front lines. And as Patton pulled his gun on Bennett and yelled, quote, I ought to shoot you myself. Hospital staff got Bennett the hell out of there. And I'm not trying to just vilify Patton, who was a greater American than I will ever come close to being. But when it came to PTSD, uh, we did a really bad job for a long time, and the tone came from the top. So when Harry got back from the war and got to New York, he saw Jackson's She-Wolf painting. Uh, And I'll post that painting. It's from 1943. Uh, It's around the same time as Stenographic Figure and the Moon Woman from Episode 5. Harry saw She-Wolf and thought, quote, Pollock's painting had what I felt in combat. It was visceral. And years later, Harry felt that same vi- like, viscerality. I-, I don't know if that's a word. He- but he felt that same viscerality when he was an art student in New York and saw Jackson's first drip show. So he just sought Jackson out. He got the number to the house in Springs. And this is probably when you would just hit zero and ask the operator for someone's number. And after a few minutes of talking, Jackson just being lonely as shit and eating a surrogate brother was like, hell, come on out and visit, which is just crazy. First, who answers the phone anymore ever? And then you just invite a stranger over? First of all, don't call me ever unless someone is dying. And also, did you clear this with Lee? Hey, I invited this guy named Harry over to the house. No, I've never met him in my life. I literally just got off the phone with him. Nope. Don't know how he got the number. But he's definitely going to be part of your life now. And with Harry, who was, I think, 24 at the time, it was now Jackson's turn to be the older brother. So as soon as Harry got to the house, him and Jackson gave each other a howdy, and then they went and played in the dirt. I wish it were less weird and cliche, but that's actually how it went down. And the two of them just wandered around during the day, pulling legs off grasshoppers and chewing grass. Also, actually how it went down and giving each other bullshit stories of their cowboy childhoods. They were just lying their asses off trying to out-cowboy one another. And at night, they would get beer from Dan Miller's store. Lee had banned liquor from the house at this point, and they drank all night and talked about art. Now, I bring up Harry for a few reasons. Uh, One is that Harry is an example of the type of people that Jackson bonded to. It's dogs, children, and broken people. But the other reason is because Harry had some insight into the way that Jackson was treating Lee at this point, who was basically running his career and making sure he didn't kill himself. When those two idiots would be up drinking all night, Lee would come down and be like, hey, maybe you guys should consider going to sleep. And Jackson would say, quote, ah, shut up, you goddamn cunt. Go fix some coffee. And when Harry commented on how unattractive Lee was, uh, I told you this guy sucks. Instead of immediately kicking him out of the house, Jackson said to Harry, quote, but she fucks like a mink. And I don't, I don't know why I thought that the saying was fuck like a minx, not a mink, because then it just sounds like you're coming all over a $16,000 coat. But regardless, unbelievably uncool way to talk about your wife. Jackson was doing the Thomas Hart Benton thing where he was just being a hyper asshole to women. Uh, he would scream at Lee and say, quote, you goddamn slut or you fucking slut. You ain't good for nothing but fucking. Then he'd lean over to Harry and say, quote, 
She's good stickin', Harry, I'll tell you that. Okay, first, and this is completely besides the point, but sex with Jackson Pollock must have been awful from beginning to end. He needs to dial it back. But at this point in the story, there's been so much that's been happening. We can't forget that he's basically spent his entire adult life sexually assaulting women before he met Lee. Now he's being an asshole to her, even though she's basically the only reason for his survival in career. And oh, by the way, he's her husband and that's his wife. I'm going to go out on a probably not so long of a limb and say it. I don't know that Jackson Pollock has any redeeming qualities. And with his new surrogate brothers and Lee being a doting wife, Jackson had all of the support he needed to have an incredibly productive summer in the fall of 1948. He was crushing paintings at that point in preparing for his second show at Betty Parsons Gallery. He stopped naming paintings at that point and instead gave them numbers, like number one, 1948. That's all it would say. Jackson said that naming a painting can cause bias in the viewer, but really he just thought it was kind of cool and mysterious. In practice, though, uh, the numbering mechanism really just confused pretty much everyone, because Jackson didn't assign numbers chronologically or with any real pattern. On the family side of things, Stella had been visiting Springs way less often because Sandy and Orloy had a son named Jay, who later named himself Jason. At at this point, I, I, I can't anymore. But Stella immediately took Jay as her own and was like that overly attentive grandmother and was spending all of her time with the new baby, which meant less time with Jackson. On top of that, Lee was becoming obsessed with the idea that Jackson was having an affair. She actually thought he was having multiple affairs with Rita Peterson and Mercedes Matter, both of whom were married and described as, quote, glorious and gorgeous young women. He wasn't, of course, having an affair with either of them because everyone except for Lee thought Jackson was a disgusting drunken monster. But Jackson would make this way worse by needling Lee and encouraging that jealousy. Uh, And at dinner parties, he would drunkenly grab at women and say, quote, I love all women. And then other times he would just stand outside of neighbors' windows when their husbands were away and scream sexual threats. One time at a dinner party, Jackson was being really inappropriate with a woman who was being a giant bitch and flirting with him right in front of Lee, and Lee just lost it and went after her. And good for you, you can't be disrespected like that in your own house. Not that Jackson was respecting her generally, but you can only be pushed so far. After it was over, Jackson stumbled onto the porch and Lee came out and he started screaming at her, Get out of here, you bitch! And then he was just flailing his arms and Lee hugged him and kissed him until he calmed down. So this is legitimately a dysfunctional and abusive relationship. This is not good. But I don't want to give you just a depressing dinner party story. Uh, So let's talk about another guest who visited in the summer of 1948. Igor Pontuhoff had spent a bunch of years just wandering around California, partying and doing absolutely nothing, and he decided to drop in on Jackson and Lee. Igor's behavior, which some people thought was charming when he was younger, was now a mixture of sad and annoying. There were other friends of Jackson and Lee's who I haven't really talked about, Harold and Mae Rosenberg. It's the same thing as Reuben Kaddish and his wife. Uh, you know, I'm sure they were lovely people, but they didn't really contribute to moving the story. Uh, they got to meet Igor that summer. And so did the Petersons. Uh, that would be Vita Peterson, who Lee thought Jackson was having an affair with, and her husband, Peter Peterson. I, 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 for fuck's sake, let's just move on. Vita Peterson thought Igor was, quote, enormously effeminate, foppish, and physically incapable. We thought he was homosexual, but Lee said not. 
and the Rosenbergs and the Petersons, everyone could see that there was something about Igor that drove Jackson, quote, into an absolute frenzy without saying a word. One night they were all walking on the beach and Jackson was just boiling with something. And he attacked Igor and the two were fighting on the beach before Peter Peterson had to pull them apart. But even with a split lip, Igor continued to stay with his ex-girlfriend and her husband who attacked him. And a few days later, there was a dinner party, arguably my favorite dinner party story of all time. Jackson got so drunk at dinner and he was so filled with rage that he went absolutely bugfuck and started throwing plates and furniture and he ripped down a cupboard filled with dishes. And then he started chasing Igor around the house and everyone was like, what the fuck is happening? And then Jackson chased Igor outside to the front yard, which an entire day's worth of northeast summer storm had turned into an enormous pit of mud. And there, in front of Lee and a bunch of their friends, Jackson and Igor finally faced off, man to man. This is where it would be decided, whatever it was. And then they lunged at each other. And one of the people who was there, Ward Bennett, said, quote, They started rolling in the mud. It was very bizarre. They weren't really fighting. They were sort of wrestling and sort of kissing each other at the same time. So, uh, all right, uh, I have thoughts on this entire thing, uh, but one of them is you might want to consider a divorce at this point. But instead of outright leaving Jackson, Lee begins to paint again, which is probably good. Uh, you know, when your ex-boyfriend is maybe having sex with your husband, it's probably good to remind yourself that there are other parts of life that can be enjoyable. And all I kept thinking with the mud wrestling makeout fight was that it probably looked like an awkward fight that no one could really put their finger on why it was weird until all of a sudden you saw like a little pink of the tongue slip in between the mud and you're like, what the fuck is happening? Okay, so to avoid confrontation or issues now that Lee was painting again, she would work in the morning when Jackson was still sleeping off his benders and she worked upstairs, not out in the barn. And Lee was also creating these mosaic tables at the time. Uh, apparently, they were pretty good. And a well-known interior designer and gallery owner named Bertha Schaefer loved them and included one of Lee's mosaic tables in an exhibition. And I'll post an example of one of Lee's tables. I have no clue if it's the one that was actually from the Schaefer exhibit, but you'll get the general idea. And from the show, Lee got public praise from the New York Times, the Herald Tribune, Architectural Forum... This all of a sudden became a really big opportunity for Lee. So after all of that praise, Bertha Schaefer invited Lee and Jackson to her apartment in New York for dinner to celebrate. And this was an incredible opportunity for Lee. If you wanted to blend art with interior design, Bertha Schaefer was the best person to have in your corner. She had the quintessential rich old lady apartment in the 40s. There were gorgeous antiques everywhere. And if you're from New York or know New York, this is that gilded Upper East Side nonsense. During dinner, as Jackson was downing his third bottle of wine, legit downing, he didn't even let it breathe, Bertha tried to take the bottle away and Jackson screamed at her, quote, what does an old lady like you do for sex? And then he began to destroy everything at Bertha Shaver's apartment that he can get his hands on, and by the time Bertha called the cops, Jackson was already passed out cold. So he just can't handle competing with Lee or having somebody else get attention. He's so broken and such a petulant child, he's incapable of sharing the spotlight with anybody else. It, it needs to be about him or he throws a tantrum. That fall, Jackson began to surprise even Roger Wilcox with how much he was drinking at Jungle Pete's. 
Roger said that for every drink he would have, Jackson would have three, and Jackson wouldn't stop until he fell down. And Jackson didn't want to rely on his bicycle anymore, or getting rides to and from Jungle Pete's, so he bought an old Model A Ford, the exact same car that him and Sandy used to take to see Leroy and the work crews. Stella was not a fan of Jackson having a car. She wrote a letter to Frank, who's still an asshole, that said, quote, Jack has a Ford coupe, and he should not drive and drink, or he will kill himself or someone else. But thankfully, the car was old as shit and wouldn't really start reliably, so Jackson was forced to still take his bike to and from Dan Miller's General Store and Jungle Pete's. And on a trip one day back from the General Store, Jackson was riding his bike and trying to balance a case of beer, and eventually he fell over, the bottle smashed, and he got all cut up. And as he bloodily managed his way to the East Hampton Medical Clinic to get bandaged up, he saw the new doctor in town, Edwin Heller. And Heller knew all about Jackson's drinking because Lee told him about it. It turns out the Bertha Schaefer incident really scared Lee. She finally realized that Jackson's behavior was a threat to his and her safety, their ability to make a living, his reputation, and his potential for success. And Dr. Heller, for however good of a doctor I'm sure he was, he'd never really treated an alcoholic before. And he decided that there was absolutely no psychological component to Jackson's alcohol issues, that they were all medical, and that alcohol was just Jackson's personal poison. Dr. Heller said to Jackson, Doctor, doctor, this man is a medical professional. Quote, Some people can't eat spinach, and you can't drink booze. And we finally may have met the biggest idiot of this story, which is saying something. Because this asshole basically treated Jackson's alcoholism like it was an allergy. And while we still can't use the word alcoholic within the confines of this story, uh, conversationally, within whatever weird relationship we're developing between ranter and listener, he's the most alcoholic. So to treat Jackson, Dr. Heller gave him a prescription for phenobarbital, which is a very powerful barbiturate and also happens to have a side effect of potential addiction. He also gave Jackson a prescription for phenotoin, Finitone? Who cares? An anti-seizure medication and told Jackson to, quote, Take these whenever you feel the need for a drink and they'll calm you down. Okay, so now Jackson Pollock has pills and he's allowed to take them anytime he wants to drink, which is basically all the time. And that was it. That was the end of the doctor visit. Just a wave and a see me when you need a refill. And immediately Lee and Jackson told everyone that he was cured. And to be fair, the pills did have a calming effect on Jackson. Even Betty Parsons realized that he was more relaxed and professional. People would eventually call these years Jackson's dry years and say that he never took a drink, which is of course bullshit. He may not have been a drunken mess in public anymore, but Jackson always kept a bottle of cooking sherry buried in the backyard. And Lee would later say that when Jackson did binge, he would go up into the guest bedroom and quote, just sit there and have fits, be completely crazed for a while. Jackson Pollock never had dry years, but now he had a severe alcohol problem and apparently limitless access to addictive tranquilizers with a dosage that just says, do your thing, but no therapist. Which is the exact moment when Roger fucking Wilcox steps into the spotlight. It had suddenly dawned on Roger Wilcox exactly how much of an alcoholic Jackson was when he had to play a role in negotiating with Bertha Shaver to not press charges. And Jackson finally confided in Wilcox that he had a problem. He admitted to Roger that he wanted to paint, he really did, but his need to get drunk overcame that, and he asked Roger for help. So this is a troubled and broken and sick man, and he's reaching out to someone, and it's Roger fucking Wilcox. 
Wilcox believed that psychoanalysis was, quote, stupid mystical bullshit, and he thought that most people's problems were their own fault. He was that old-school, just-shake-it-off-and-be-a-man-and-handle-your-responsibilities kind of guy. He told Jackson, quote, So you're a drunk. The only person who can stop you from being a drunk is yourself. So Wilcox got to work figuring out a way to help out Jackson. You know, instead of referring him to a therapist who was trained to do so, don't worry about it, Roger fucking Wilcox has this covered. The only problem was, Roger Wilcox had no idea what he was doing. Quote, I had never questioned people before. Yeah, Roger, you haven't, because you're an engineer. You're the friend to call when you need a barn move closer to your house, not a goddamn therapist. And then one day, when Roger Wilcox was reading his favorite magazine, Astounding Science Fiction, he came across an announcement for one of the magazine's recurring contributors who had an upcoming book that promised to, quote, reduce psychotherapy to a simple set of principles which were corollaries to engineering principles. And Wilcox, being an engineer, thought this was great. Quote, there was no mysticism, no bullshit, just a few straightforward principles that anyone could apply. That book was to be called Dianetics, and its author, of course, was none other than L. Ron Hubbard. That's right, what was originally claimed to be a science and medicine and turned into Scientology for allegedly, allegedly, the huge tax benefits and because another guy named Don Purcell held the copyright on the name Dianetics, Jackson Pollock was part of basically the first wave of Scientology. And we're not going to veer off down this road. Uh, one, I don't want one of those assholes to sue me. And two, you already know the story. There are hundreds of podcasts alone on Scientology. I'm not giving any fresh perspectives, and it's just hacky. But here's what you need to know. For the next, I think, 18 months, or, or until I mention another therapist, Roger fucking Wilcox is fiddling in Jackson's mind and auditing his memories, and there's Thadens and Tom Cruise is there. Colonel Jackson! This is a horrifying development. He was better off being completely left alone than having Jungle Pete's regular Roger fucking Wilcox messing with his head. So now Jackson is pumped up on Dianetics and barbiturates, and it's giving him some sort of short-term relief, and that's happening at the perfect time. I think I might have mentioned a few episodes ago that patriotism from World War II was whipping up interest in having a famous American artist. And as of 1949, people's finances finally caught up to their desires. The number of private galleries in New York had jumped fourfold from 1940 to 1946, and even high-end retail stores got in on the action. Macy's, which was considered high-end retail back then, sold a Rembrandt called Portrait of an Old Man for $7,000, and some other stores saw, uh, sold a Rembrandt for $10,000, which is just nuts. The other component to this perfect storm was that Europe was completely demolished in World War II. And while Europe was still producing art, it was a continent climbing out of the ruins because everything was bombed to shit. I'll let General Patton explain. To various towns in southern Germany and Austria, whose names I can't pronounce, but who, whose places I have removed. <laughs> So this is really the moment where New York begins to grow into not just a financial capital, but a cultural capital as well. Life magazine was convening roundtables of art critics, so there was money and also a cultural interest, and if there was ever going to be a New York artist who would become a star, now was the time. And it was actually Life magazine that gave Jackson his big break when they proposed to write a feature story on him. 
And this was promising, but also concerning, because a positive story would catapult Jackson into the stratosphere. But a negative or critical story, I mean, there was actually an artist, uh, John Dubuffet, whose career was basically decimated by a negative life story a year before, and you never know which way they were going to go. But Jackson and Lee ultimately decided it was worth the risk, and they met a reporter at the Time Life building on July 18, 1949. And during the interview, Jackson spoke in these stunted, pre-planned talking points, and Lee would supplement everything he said, rounding it out. You heard the video, which was made about a year from now. He was basically doing that. And the whole story they wove was a prepackaged bullshit thing wrapped in a bow. Uh, they said Jackson wanted to be an artist first in his family, not Charles or Sandy, and that Jackson's time with Benton was, quote, a complete loss. And Jackson was just repeating previous statements about his paintings and what they mean, saying the same thing over and over again as if he didn't know what he was talking about. Before the August 8th issue was published, there was an enormous infighting within the life staff about Jackson and his art. Some thought he was a genius, some thought he was a fraud. So the article didn't do so much as resolve that issue as made it public. The article was titled, Jackson Pollock, Is He the Greatest Painter in the United States? And the article gave both arguments to, to make their points. It told the tale of a rogue cowboy artist who was maybe a genius or maybe a fraud, maybe a complete phony. But the other awkward thing the article did was it romanticized Jackson's drinking to a certain extent. He was portrayed as a Hemingway-esque figure, and some people thought, quote, he should be allowed the great American vice, the Hemingway vice of being a drunk. And the carefully constructed idea of Jackson Pollock was now public. Those who knew him best were a little more cautious. Only Sandy acknowledged the article. Frank, Marvin slash Jay, Charles, they all kept their mouths shut. Stella, on the other hand, who was so proud of her little boy, would just send copies of the magazine to everyone. And rightfully so. This was Life magazine. It was not only well-respected, but it was incredibly well-read. Your average American now knew about Jackson Pollock. He became crazy famous basically overnight. I'm sure it's going to be fine. The Life article also created a huge wave of anticipation for Jackson's November 1949 show at the Parsons Gallery. Usually the opening night of these kinds of shows were friends, family, fellow artists, insiders, people like that. But on November 21st, it was buyers, the New York elite. This was an absolute event. By the end of the show, 18 paintings were sold and more were on the way. Uh, critics came along to Jackson's new drip technique and Jackson was now the life painter. He's almost becoming sort of a concept. Uh, he's seen as a leading voice in the abstractionist movement in New York. He was in a bunch of magazines. Even in Europe, Peggy was capitalizing on Jackson's success because she had that buildup of his paintings that she hadn't sold yet. And she put on an enormous outdoor Pollock show in Venice. And for the next six months or so, Jackson was being dragged around New York being a celebrity, going to events and dinners, just to the gills with barbiturates. In the late spring, early summer of 1950, uh, Jackson was having a hard time painting. He was still recovering from the last six whirlwind months. The big events at the house that summer were these carefully cultivated dinner parties put on by Lee. Now that Jackson was the famous life artist, it was important to use these dinners for marketing and sales purposes. So old friends like the Caddishes, the Wilcox, they didn't really get the invite anymore. Uh, Clement Greenberg was really the only pre-barbituate friend who was invited. And these new sycophants and suck-ups, they would come and just be in awe of Jackson in his studio. Even the dumb things he said when he actually spoke were considered to be deep and meaningful. When he would say yes or I agree, one dinner guest said it was, quote, 
grounded in another world, the most interesting and profound thing said all evening long. No, no, it wasn't. He still doesn't know how to use his words. He's just weird and a mess. But this entire situation was being carefully orchestrated by Lee, and she's now referring to him as Pollock, not Jackson or Jack. She would also apologize for everything Jackson did. If he didn't talk during an entire dinner, Lee would say, quote, He doesn't believe in talking. He believes in doing. When he took too many barbiturates and passed out on May Rosenberg's new mattress and peed all over it, Lee refused to apologize and said, quote, He can do anything he wants. He's a genius. The amount of enabling that goes on in this story is absolutely incredible. And with a newfound confidence from the Life article, when Jackson began to paint again, he went big. Uh, Jackson hated painting on small canvases that were easier to sell. So once he got going, he started painting these massive and complex drip paintings again. And now that he's famous, I don't think he felt like he needed to be restrained by anything. He painted number one, 1950, which Greenberg said he should call Lavender Mist. Uh, there was no lavender in it, but Greenberg said that when you step back, that's the, the image that it gave off. Lavender Mist was gigantic. It was uh, seven feet by almost ten feet, and Jackson took his time with this one. He worked close to the surface and dripped line after line that almost created um, like a mesh, and then large looping movements, but the bigger movements felt like they were hidden a bit. And that was one of the critiques of uh, Jackson's early drip paintings. If you look at some of the earlier works like Sea Change or Full Fathom 5, uh, there wasn't any canvas that showed. The skeins in the paintings were very dense and layered. So just every single inch has line after overlapping line, and it's just relentless, and that's basically his brain on canvas. And by making the pattern so dense and thick, Jackson was actually concealing his insecurities by making sure there was no negative space, so you wouldn't have anything to judge the pattern against. So with Jackson's early drip paintings, he was onto something, but was still painting scared is the way people described it. Because if you can't see any canvas, there's more room for mistakes. You could just cover them up. You're almost overwhelming the viewer. But when you allow canvas to show through, you're giving even more of yourself because you're open to more criticism. And a good example of Jackson allowing that criticism and allowing his patterns to speak for themselves is number 32, 1950, uh, which is Jackson really testing negative space and to see if the patterns themselves hold up. It's just black paint against a canvas, and there's a ton of negative space showing, and it almost looks like dripped ink, and it's way less chaotic than the first series. And that summer, with L. Ron Hubbard at his back, Jackson created two of what are not only his largest paintings, but what are considered to be his best paintings in his career. While Lavender Mist was more complex and a more sophisticated version of his earlier complex paintings, and number 32 was simpler and more open, he finally combined both of those concepts. The first painting was number 31, 1950, which would eventually be called One, and the other was number 30, 1950, later called Autumn Rhythm. And if you're still listening and you've been with the story since episode one, uh, first, it's incredibly humbling, and I really appreciate you guys taking this bizarre journey with me, otherwise I'm just some crazy person yelling in my closet. But for all the peaks and valleys we've gone through in this story so far, for every trip to Louisiana for a handjob, for every destroyed Greek Orthodox church, weird stuff with P. Igor, this is Apex Jackson Pollock. He is fully tranquilized and as sober as he's going to get. He is famous and the money is just starting to roll in and he is being considered by some to be the next Picasso. And for all the fucked up choices he's made and the things he's done and his childhood and circumstances, his mental illness and unchecked addictions, the enabling by basically everybody in his life. I mean, think of how long ago it was we talked about Krishnamurti the literally perfect. 
everything comes together and coalesces in autumn rhythm and one. But the problem with Jackson finding balance and control in his art and getting to those you know, two masterpiece paintings, he lost that frantic energy that got the whole thing started to begin with. And after three years of dripping, Jackson was losing that torment to drive and his painting was becoming more mechanical, almost routine. And the other problem was with the Life article, that established Jackson as the drip painter and now he's kind of locked into that style which is beginning to feel formulaic to him. Jackson is not equipped to get to the point where he's put all of his demons on canvas and has nothing left to say, and that point in time is rapidly approaching. He also wasn't emotionally or psychologically equipped to handle this level of fame, and as expected, he turned into a real dick. With all of that insecurity and self-loathing never being properly addressed, there was no foundation of a person for him to lean on. So he just became a spoiled brat. Uh, when he'd talk to other artists, he'd say things like, quote, Everyone's shit but de Koenig and me. He didn't want to deal with Betty Parsons anymore and left that to Lee. He basically became a diva. Then Hans Namuth entered Jackson and Lee's life. Hans was a photographer at Harper's Bazaar, and even though he didn't really care for Jackson's art, he was fascinated with Jackson as a person. Hans wanted full access to Jackson, and Lee and Jackson allowed it. The promotional potential of a great photographer telling a story was too tempting. So Jackson and Hans began this months-long process of Hans taking over 500 photos of Jackson at work, him around the house. They were creating this image of a tortured artist who suffered for his art, and the worn and wrinkled face of a man who seemed too much, and it was very dramatic. And Jackson loved it. He just was straight up mugging for the camera, and he became obsessed with the idea of a painter as being almost like an actor, and he wanted to create an actor's persona. And to create this new image, Jackson was spending a ton of money on expensive suits and developing a taste for Scottish tweeds, and he wanted to get a new car. And the money was just pouring in now. The average blue-collar salary in 1950 was around $2,800 a year, and the average white-collar job paid around $3,500 a year. But Jackson was now making $6,500 a year and was one of the most profitable artists in America. In that first run of money, Jackson blew through it almost immediately by turning his house into this giant money pit. He remodeled, redecorated, put in new plumbing and heating. Uh, he remodeled the studio, replaced the wiring. The little boy who moved around his entire childhood was desperately trying to make the perfect home. Not surprisingly, everybody thought that Jackson was turning into an even bigger asshole than he was before. And there was definitely an envy and jealousy thing happening with friends and other artists, but Jackson wasn't that fun to be around to begin with. And the person who had the biggest struggle with Jackson's success was actually Lee. Not only had Jackson's career completely overshadowed Lee's, which she pretty much gave up, just like she did with Igor, but every time there was a chance of it getting restarted, like with Bertha Schaefer, Jackson actively ruins it. And it was around 1950-1951 that Lee started to get more confident with her art and push her own career, not just Jackson's. In Jackson's opinion of this whole situation, he said to Roger fucking Wilcox, quote, Lee keeps copying me and I'd wish she'd stop. And we're almost done with this episode. I know this one's going a little bit long, but there are two events or tipping points that we need to talk about. The first is a Pollock family reunion. There had been discussions about having one since Stella moved to Connecticut with Sandy and Orloy, and now that Charles and Elizabeth are in town, it's everyone's around, so it's going to finally happen. This event was arguably and sadly probably the biggest personal moment of Jackson's life. 
He was now going to be able to stand in front of his entire family, the people who really meant the most to him as this famous artist in a desperate attempt at validation. A week before the reunion, he couldn't sleep or work, and he was either excited that this would be, quote, triumph over his family, or, quote, that it would be a bust. Now let's talk about the family generally. Uh, the years haven't really been too kind to the rest of the Pollock boys. Gonna take a sentimental journey. Frank and Marie were on the way to divorce, and their son Jonathan was seriously ill, and they were struggling to get by on Frank's not-so-great salary at a plant nursery. Frank apparently always wanted to be a writer, and he was talented but could never really get out of his own way, and Marie said of Frank, quote, Frank looked the most like his father, but they were alike in other ways. They both ended up disappointed men. Or maybe you never amounted to shit because you're the type of person that chloroforms dogs. Marvin slash Jay basically had to drag Alma to the reunion because she hated Jackson and Lee, and they were also struggling... Charles and Elizabeth's marriage was falling apart, and Charles bailed out of the New York art scene right before the WPA came into effect. So he missed the boat on the social and creative wave that hit the city in the 30s and 40s, and he suffered a pretty serious breakdown in 1942. And then Sandy and Arloy were not only struggling to feed their family, but they were also acting as the primary caregivers to Stella. All of the brothers had sent money to help with Stella's care over the years, except, of course, Jackson. Things had gotten so bad financially that Arloy had to go back to work and she left Stella in charge of the kids. And Stella being Stella, she took over and made a mess of the kids. She basically ignored the one daughter Karen because she quote, wasn't pretty enough. And the younger son Jay, later Jason, he called Stella mommy and his mother Loy. So everybody is a mess, but I think it's pretty funny that he not only calls his mother by her first name, but he just gives her a little nickname. That part, that sucks. And Jackson and Lee were complete assholes during the family reunion. Uh, Jackson told Frank that if he bought Lavender Mist for $15,000, one day it would be worth $100,000. Frank works at a plant nursery, and that's a noble job, but stop being a dick to your brother. Like, I get that he murdered Jip, but still. Jackson was just desperately trying to impress his family all weekend, and they were not having it. First, there was a ton of resentment that Jackson was so rich and he wasn't helping at all financially with Stella. And the other part was they didn't really get his art, so they weren't impressed. His whole family really considered Charles to be the painter in the family, and they were excited for Charles to be giving it another shot. And they just looked at Jackson and was like, nah, all right, I, I, we don't get it. So Jackson's family was making him feel his deepest fear at this point, which was that he was a complete fraud. So he pulled out an Italian magazine called La Arte Moderna and was asking his family if they knew Italian to translate an article about him. And there was this phrase from the article that he kept repeating over and over again all night, Pavero Picasso, Pavero Picasso. And when the family was trying to play a game of anagrams, he kept saying it over and over again until Alma Pollock finally yelled at him and basically told him to cut this shit. And Jackson looked up and saw his entire family was staring at him like he was Kevin McAllister after he ruined the family's pre-vacation pizza dinner. What is the matter with you? Look what you did, you little jerk! The biggest moment for Jackson turned out to be one of his biggest disappointments. And finally, we're going to wrap up this episode right where we started. Hans Nemu thought Jackson's style of painting was best captured on film to acknowledge the fact that so much of his work was action and movement. And Jackson agreed, because even though he'd been in a depression since the family reunion, he was still desperate for celebrity and the idea of being a movie star. And he was like, Hans, I'm fucking in. Hans, Bobby, 
I'm your white knight. And for what I believe turned into like a 10-minute short, the entire process took months. The biggest problem was that movie-making Jackson's technique didn't mesh at all. The emotional automatism means that Jackson has to completely tune out the world, go inside himself, and just let it all drip onto the canvases. And Namuth kept saying, cut, start over, Jackson, why don't you move this way, do this, don't do that. And most of the shots were outside, so September turned into October, which turned into November. And the shots got colder and colder, and Namuth was giving more and more directions, not knowing that he was doing the exact wrong thing with Jackson right now. Not only did he keep pulling Jackson out of the headspace he needed to be in, but by telling him over and over again to do things different, he basically confirmed Jackson's fears that he was a complete fraud and that he was doing the wrong thing, and that's why this was taking so long. And on Thanksgiving, Lee had a bunch of people over for dinner, and Jackson and Hans were wrapping up their final shot. And then at one point, Jackson stormed into the house, and everyone said he was blue from the cold, and he filled up a glass with whiskey and downed it. And then he filled another one up and downed it. And Lee and Hans, they were just looking at him being like, oh shit, like this is not good. And as more guests started to arrive, Jackson was getting that Jackson-level drunk that we all know. And him and Hans just started yelling at each other and calling each other phony, which continued through dinner as they whisper-yelled at each other. Like, fuck, fuck you, you phony. You're a phony. You're phony. They just kept yelling phony at each other. It's the weirdest thing. Until Jackson finally got up, grabbed the dining room table, and there were like 10 or so people at this dinner, and he flipped the table, sending glass and food everywhere, fucking up Thanksgiving for everyone. So that sober period that everyone thought was happening, with the barbiturates and the drunken bedroom fits, that was over, and Jackson fell off the wagon hard and in a very public fashion. So next episode, we're actually, let's talk about next episode. I'm doing something for the next episode that I sort of have mapped out in my mind, and I'm not exactly sure how to execute it. So there may be a bit of a delay because of the holidays and also because I don't know what the hell I'm doing, uh, but it shouldn't be too bad, and I think it's going to be worth it. So that's it. Thank you again for tuning in, and uh, thank you for the iTunes reviews that came in. I I really appreciate it. It doesn't go unnoticed. Uh, So thank you very much. Mostly I'm just stoked that you guys are enjoying the show. So take care, and I will talk to everyone soon. For a wonderful time, if you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where Harlem lives? Putting on the ribbon, spangled gown upon the bevy of high brown from down the levee, all bits and bits. Putting on the ribbon, that's where each and every Lulu Bell goes.